0: Coming up, Guardian columnist Marina Hyde looks at how Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng responds to the chaos he creates himself. Food writer Amy Levitt on why Americans are so obsessed with pumpkin spice. Amina Sana talks to comedian and Strictly Come Dancing star Jade Adams about TV snobs, loathsome stand-ups and losing her big sister Jenna. And to round it off, Journalist Will Caldwell interviews CEO of The Smiley Company, Nicholas Lufrani, on the business behind the decades-old Smiley symbol.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon music app for free or go to amazon.com newsadfree news ad free. That's amazon.com newsadfree news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
0: Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, this week has been somewhat turbulent for Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng. As Marina Hyde points out, The markets are in meltdown. But the Chancellor would prefer we didn't talk about that. Read by Rachel Louise Miller. On Tuesday,
2: we considered the plight of Chancellor-Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng with the same sensitivity and grace he brings to his own work. None. It really takes a special class of nomatery to spend £45 billion in old money, and even have rich people you helped actively deplore or pity you. And not just them, but markets too. Imagine spending your entire career extolling the value of free markets, but the first time the free markets get to seriously value you results in a bond market meltdown. The pound hurtling towards dollar and euro parity, and a bleaker prospect for your country than the one opened on Black Wednesday. At the time of typing, 10 banks have pulled their mortgage products amid warnings interest rates could hit 6%. The Chancellor appears to have brought a pamphlet to a gunfight. As for how well Kwarteng's taking it, Friday saw him rising above the bed he'd just shat, declaring, I don't comment on market movements. Righto. Amazing that Kwasi has previously issued comments on everything from statue nonsense to Labour failing to condemn a rail strike, but is not moved to open his trap on the full-spectrum credibility torching that provoked one bank's chief economist to observe mildly that investors seem to regard the UK Conservative Party as a doomsday cult. Oof. I'm not saying Kwarteng's efforts to retain his grandeur are doomed, but this feels a little like screaming, I don't comment on this stuff because I have dignity, okay? While standing naked in the middle of your local high street in a live golf cap with a nappy round your ankles. By the time carnage had resumed yesterday morning, Quateng proxies began stepping in to comment for him. And you'll never guess whose fault it all is. Someone else's, as the Chancellor's bros told the Times. This is city boys playing fast and loose with the economy. It's what, sorry? Shift your thousand yard stare to the front page of Tuesday's Daily Mail next, to which this line has now graduated. The paper splashes with Fury at the City Slickers betting against UK plc. Yes, why do they hate Britain? Is it something to do with avocados? Are they in league with Meghan and the BBC? Are markets woke? Is the mail on meth? No answers to these questions, frustratingly but there's certainly more. Labour and economists critical of the government plans sought to blame Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget last Friday for sparking the turbulence, sniffs the Mail. A way of putting it that suggests that, actually, what Kwarteng said last Friday has precisely nothing to do with the market meltdown that, by complete and utter coincidence, started right after he said it. I am on absolute tenterhooks to know what massive other thing that happened last Friday was that plunged an entire country into turmoil. Though I can't help feeling that whatever it was should have been the splash instead of some snowflaking about how markets work. Perhaps tomorrow. For those of us who dislike being rushed, meanwhile, it's a shame to be getting to know lieutenants at the Treasury while they're already halfway to the stage to receive their Darwin Awards. Even so, a warm welcome to Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Chris Philp, whose premature tweet last Friday, explaining that it was great to see sterling strengthening on the back of the new UK growth plan, may yet rival David Cameron's iconic Chaos with Ed Miliband line. Welcome, too, to the Treasury Minister, Richard Fuller, who looks like he'd list his hobbies as, prefer not to say, and believes that young people should come off their plodding path and become venture capitalists. In many ways, they already are Richard. Buying anything less than a 600 multipack of a household essential is a cavalier act of faith in this economy. As for Kwasi's boss, Liz Truss famously promised to hit the ground on day one. And she really does seem to be boring right down into the earth's crust. Their negative impact is so great that NASA wants to use her and Quatang to fire into asteroids. For now, I'm sure none of us can believe all this is happening on the watch of two of the authors of Britannia Unchained, which always sounded like a version of Atlas Shrugged set in a Surrey business park. Let's face it, if someone said, Come to my club tonight, it's called Britannia Unchained, there are various possibilities of what could be involved. But none of them are good, are they? The one thing you know you're not going to find behind the door of Britannia Unchained is anything good. Still, a boost to heroin imports was provided by the first sightings of Tory MPs explaining that letters of no confidence were already going into to Graham Brady. As one malcontent put it, we can't go on like this. And yet, that's demonstrably untrue. literally. All they do is go on like this. We're about ten minutes into the fourth Prime Minister in just over six years, and they're already going on exactly like this all over again. Actually, hang on, let me give you the full quote from the MP. There will come a time, this person predicts, when people have to say, I know it'll make us look chaotic, but we can't go on like this. Yup. It might seem unthinkable, it might be invisible to outsiders, and it does require a kind of next-level freeing of the mind. But there might, just might, come a time when the Conservative Party begins to look a shade chaotic.
0: That was The Markets Are In Meltdown, But At Least Kwasi quartengs Doomsday Cult Isn't To Blame, by Marina Hyde, read by Rachel Louise Miller. Next, American food writer Amy Levitt examines pumpkin spice season, a phenomenon that's gone from a Starbucks flavor to our whole season. From coffee flavoring to dog treats to deodorant, why are Americans so obsessed with pumpkin spice products? Read by Arazu. Pumpkin
3: spice season, which officially began the last Tuesday of August when Starbucks released its full drinks menu, is not the same as full. It's more about the idea of fall. During pumpkin spice season, there are no cold rainy days or uncomfortable family gatherings. Instead, all is crisp air, fuzzy sweaters, leaf piles, college football, bonfires, Taylor Swift albums and an overwhelming feeling of cosiness. Scandinavians have hygge. Americans have pumpkin spice. It's such a lovely idea that other coffee shops and grocery stores, in a quest to beat Starbucks at its own game, have started rolling out their pumpkin spice products earlier and earlier in August. The 7-Eleven pumpkin spice latte launched this year on 5th of August, which, in the Northern Hemisphere, is still indisputably summer. Increasingly unlikely and downright gross products now offer pumpkin spice options, including bone broth protein, deodorant and poppers. There's nothing that can't be pumpkin. During the fiscal year that ended on 30th July 2022, Americans purchased more than $236 million in pumpkin spice-flavoured grocery items, according to the market research firm Nielsen IQ, a 24% increase over the previous year. This accounting doesn't include the myriad pumpkin spice household items like scented candles and dog shampoo, or dishes and drinks in restaurants and coffee shops. Amazon declined to share how many pumpkin spice products it sells, but a keyword search turned up more than 138,000 items. These include not just cookies and pie filling, the two most popular applications of pumpkin spice, but also breakfast cereal, granola bars, hot chocolate, pet treats, baby food, beer, ramen, goldfish crackers and spam. Starbucks reports that it has sold more than 600 million pumpkin spice lattes in the US since the drink debuted in 2003, and 100 million more pumpkin cream cold brews available since 2019. Torani, one of the largest manufacturers of coffee flavourings, offers 15 different pumpkin syrups and sauces, and sells more than half of them in August as coffee houses start stocking up for the season. As of mid-August 2022, the company has already shipped enough product to flavour 17 million pumpkin spice drinks, 4 million more drinks than it sold during the entire fall of 2021. Strangely, although pumpkin is available throughout most of the world and Starbucks pumpkin spice lattes in 82 countries, the pumpkin spice obsession remains limited to North America. Perhaps this is because the US and Canada are the only countries where people eat pumpkin pie and pumpkin pie tastes less like pumpkin than the spices mixed with it. One of the two earliest published pumpkin pie recipes, both of which appeared in a 1793 cookbook called American Cookery by Amelia Simmons, used mace, nutmeg and ginger, while the other used molasses, allspice and ginger, and the flavour profile hasn't changed much over the past two centuries. The blend we now think of as pumpkin pie spice, cinnamon, ginger, nutmeg and allspice was codified by the McCormick Spice Company in 1934, around the same time as the rise of canned pumpkin, in order to take the guesswork out of knowing which spices and amounts to use, according to a company spokeswoman. Although McCormick's pumpkin pie spice is available all year round, 76% of annual sales are between September and November. During those months, it is surpassed in popularity only by cinnamon, nutmeg and poultry seasoning. In 2010, McCormick included pumpkin pie spice in its annual flavor forecast, a list of trends that the company's executives think will gain traction in the near future, based on discussions with chefs, bakers, and food writers, and McCormick's own production team. Because McCormick is the world's largest spice company, these prophecies tend to be self fulfilling. This year, they're pushing miso caramel, in case you're wondering. In the case of pumpkin pie spice, The forecasters predicted that its appeal would expand far beyond pie, cake and cookies. And lo and behold, it did, with a bit of help from the company's chefs and marketing team, who developed and disseminated a collection of recipes, sweet and savoury, that incorporated the spice blend. But why has pumpkin spice become the quintessential flavour of fall instead of, say, apple or pear? It's a matter of perception, says Jason Fisher a professor of psychological and brain sciences at John Hopkins University. Most people have definite memories of eating apples and ideas of what apples should taste like. But when you ask people what's it like to take a bite of pumpkin, Fisher says, they've never done that. It's a blank slate. It's something that's amenable to reading all these other sensory cues onto. You add spices to it, attach feelings of fall. Imagine something sweet and creamy that you put in drinks. The Starbucks Pumpkin Spice Latte, known to devotees as the PSL, was invented in the spring of 2003 when Peter Jukes, the company's director of espresso, encouraged by the success of the gingerbread latte and the peppermint mocha the previous holiday season, decided to create a drink for fall. According to legend and the Starbucks website, he and his team spent a day in a room decorated with pumpkins and kitschy fall decor, alternating sips of espresso with bites of pumpkin pie. In order to determine which flavors from the pie worked best with coffee, one of the early names for the drink was the full spice latte, and indeed the PSL would be all spice, no good, until 2015, when Starbucks, with much fanfare, switched to a flavor syrup that contained actual pumpkin. It's entirely possible, Fisher says, that with different marketing and visual cues, the exact same drink could be repositioned as a midwinter spice latte or in its iced form, a summer spice latte. It also, as the food scientist Kantha Schelk points out, tastes a lot like chai, but it won't. A pumpkin spice latte is a pumpkin spice latte because it, like the thousands of other pumpkin and pumpkin spice products, is only available from August through November. Pumpkin spice's limited nature is what keeps it special, says Andrea Ramirez, the consumer and customer insight manager for Tarani. If it were widely available year-round, there wouldn't be the same anticipation, the countdown or the frenzy to get it while it's available. And when pumpkin spice is in season, customers take advantage. In a 2020 study of what it describes as a major gourmet coffee chain, the NPD Group, a Chicago-based market research firm, determined that repeat PSL customers were three times more likely to order the drink than those who had never had one and that people whose orders contained PSLs were likely to pay an average of $2.77 more per order. Pumpkin spice lovers aren't just willing to buy more, they're also willing to pay more. In a 2020 study of 40 grocery items across six retailers, Magnify Money, a personal finance site owned by LendingTree, discovered an average 8.8% tax on pumpkin spice items. Trader Joe's was the worst perpetrator, with an average pumpkin spice markup of 17.6%. But if sales are any indication, shoppers don't care. Are they being duped? Would pumpkin spice by any other name taste so sweet? As an answer, Jason Fisher proposes this thought experiment. Next time you have a pumpkin spice latte, stop and reflect. What does it taste like? Does it really taste like pumpkin? Imagine what carving a pumpkin tastes like. It's nothing like the pumpkin spice latte. But it's also going to be part of your experience of the smell of pumpkin. The cues are never really absent, he concludes. We never experience anything out of context. Especially if there is money to be made.
0: That was dog treats, deodorant, spam. Why Does America Sell 138,000 Pumpkin Spice Things? By Amy Levitt, read by Arazoo. We'll be back after this short break.
3: It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret?
2: It would start off with a random girl
3: and just say, Hey, hon, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention
2: it to anybody. But it quickly escalates.
3: It just spread like a wildfire. I still
1: sleep with clubs next to my bed.
3: I didn't know how far this was going to go.
2: People seldom show their true selves online. But one man, he's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages?
3: He actually said to me, good luck, proving it's me.
0: And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated. He just went within himself even further.
2: Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand?
0: And if I could just turn back the clock? From the Guardian, I'm showing Kyla, and this is... Can I Tell You a Secret? A story
2: about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Listen to all episodes now. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics, so they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
0: Welcome back to Weekend. Now, Jade Adams is a comedian from Bristol who's currently one of the stars hitting the stage in the latest series of Strictly Come Dancing. Guardian writer Amina Sana spoke to her about training for the show she always dreamed of making it onto, why she doesn't follow comedians on social media and the insidiousness of fat shaming. Read by Rachel Louise Miller.
2: During the very first series of Strictly Come Dancing in 2004, Jade Adams turned to her sister or her mum, she can't quite remember which, and said, I'm going to be on Strictly. this year." she is doing just that. Adams, actor, comedian and force of nature, has realised her dream and she is very excited, flipping between not quite believing it and shrugging at its sheer inevitability. What does she love about the show? It's what I know, she says. I grew up wearing fluorescent costumes with crystals on them. That's normal to me. As a child growing up in Bristol, Adams would enter freestyle disco dancing competitions alongside her sister Jenna, who was two years older than her. It is not something she thinks will give her any particular advantage on Strictly, except maybe her experience in learning a routine because of disco's frenetic techno pace. But we used to do the cha-cha-cha quite a lot together, she says. It wasn't part of dancing for us, but we knew it. We used to go clubbing and do synchronised dance routines and everyone would watch. Adams rarely won a competition, but Jenna did. Loads, the bitch, she says jokingly. The sisters were intensely close. She was really slim and athletic. I didn't fit the mould and my mum did a really good job at pretending it wasn't to do with me being chubby. Who knew Gail Adams would be the body-positive queen of 1997, or whatever it was? Adams laughs. The day Adams did win, in a performance with her sister at one of disco dancing's main contests at a holiday camp, is cemented in her mind. It was a huge competition that happened over the weekend. We'd all stay in static caravans. Jenna and I had new costumes. Our mum's best, she beams. We danced so well that when I came off stage, people were touching me like I was a god. There was a tunnel of people complimenting me as I left the dance floor and I remember thinking, this is nice. It was perhaps the moment when she realised she wanted to be a performer. Her first experience of the rush of audience appreciation. Jenna had it before because she was so good. In 2011, Jenna died of a brain tumour, aged 28, and her absence will weigh on every moment of Adams' time on Strictly, however joyful. It's incredibly emotional, says Adams simply. I don't care if I get knocked out in that first week, as long as I get on it. We meet in a London restaurant, Adams has just returned from the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, after an 11-hour train journey with five huge bags and a 69-year-old mother, where she was performing a stand-up show. Over the coming months, she will be on primetime Saturday night TV, and next year she will tour her comedy show, appear in the film version of the Take That musical, Greatest Days, reprise her role in the award-winning sitcom Alma's Not Normal, and star in her own sitcom, Set in a Call Centre. She has been a TV presenter, does a podcast and is huge on TikTok, where clips of her have been viewed hundreds of thousands of times. I'm pretty busy at the moment, but I want it, she says. I'm having the time of my life. Adams is warm. She greets me with a hug and funny, clearly. She is ultra confident and sure of herself. Her newfound profile does not seem a surprise to her, and at one point she states, matter-of-factly, I'm incredibly charismatic. But there's also a sense that it has been hard won. She doesn't follow any comedians on social media, she says. Comparison is the greatest form of violence against yourself. You can't do your job if you're constantly comparing yourself to other people's successes. Adams is 37. And about four years ago, started having therapy, partly to unpick why she is such a people pleaser. Her therapist, she says, taught me all about boundaries. I didn't have any. Does she still want people to like her? Yeah, a lot, she says instantly. Less and less as I get older. And the right people, now I've had therapy. I'm not as open as I used to be. I don't let people treat me like shit anymore. Being a performer, she is well aware, is often the ultimate in people-pleasing. I like to make people happy. I like people being comfortable in my presence. And performing is the extreme version of that. Her latest show, which she performed in Edinburgh, is called Men, I Can Save You. And is her take on men losing power and how she can help them deal with it. I'd already done a show about women. Serious Black Jumper, renamed from its original title The Ballad of Kylie Jenner's Old Face, for Amazon Prime. And what is equality if you don't even it up? She says, I had observed men a lot, and what I had observed is that they are really quite lost right now. That immediately kicks in the desire I have to save everyone. And so the rest of the show is about her saviour complex at the expense of herself. She had the idea for the show before her relationship with her boyfriend, another comedian who she doesn't want to name, ended. But her newly single status allowed her to write about finding herself, sexually and otherwise. She is, she says, absolutely so happy to be single. I'm going into strictly single not having to worry about how convincing your rumba looks. Also, she says, smiling, the real reason I'm doing the comedy show is, through a series of eliminations, I came to straight white guys as the only thing I can take the piss out of. No one's going to cancel me. It's a joke, but it's also the current conversation in comedy. What, if anything, is off limits. I know what I don't want to joke about. I have no desire to hurt people's feelings, she says. I also don't believe that you should be telling other people what they can say. I don't want to live in that world. It hasn't made her second guess what she writes, she says, because I'm a good enough writer to write stuff that's not going to offend people. I think sometimes we mistake offensive comedy with bad writing. I believe you can joke about anything as long as the writing is good enough. She likes American comedian and musician Stephen Lynch. He'd be cancelled nowadays for some of his songs. There's one about being fat that is really dark, but it makes me laugh. It's so naughty. I think that's what I would miss, if we had this stringent list of what we can and cannot laugh at. I'd miss the naughtiness. That is why, she believes, new and diverse voices are key. Getting comedy from working-class people is so important, she says. The reason Alma's Not Normal, a dark comedy about a woman who takes a job as an escort, Adams plays her best friend, did so well, its writer and star Sophie Willen won a BAFTA, she says, is because it's an incredibly fresh take on the world, from a viewpoint that isn't often in the industry, so it means all the jokes are new. If you keep promoting people from the same university, you're going to get the same point of view on every TV show. You're not going to be able to differentiate between anything, and people are going to get bored of comedy. What happens then, she says, is rebellious people come along to try to do the antithesis of that. Adams doesn't have much time for many of the middle-class left-wing liberals she meets backstage at TV shows. You see what they're like online and it looks like they're such nice people and then you meet them and you're like, you're a terrible person. Hypocrisy does my head in. In one of her shows, she remarked, amused but derisive, that stand-up isn't considered stand-up these days unless it preaches something to its audience, often regardless of whether it is funny or not. Who are we to teach other people how to live their lives? Have you met comedians? She says now with a laugh. They're the worst people I've ever met in my life. Scared, fearful, rejected, proving people wrong. She spits out the final word as if it's the worst. Mediocre. Despite her success, as a working class woman, Adams feels that she is treated differently in comedy. I don't get second chances like other people do. If I mess something up, I don't get asked to do it again. If I'm bad, it's like it's the worst thing ever, because I dared to believe that I can do this. There is an assumption, she thinks, that she shouldn't be as confident as she is. But I am. I can fail, and I can dust myself off and try again. Where did that come from? Those dance competitions, she says. Failing every single week for 13 years, you get used to being gracious about it. I think that has instilled quite a big work ethic in me for this industry. I try not to think too much about the injustices or the politics of it. I've just got to be good, better. Adams always thought she was funny, but it wasn't until her sister was very ill that she really embraced it. Jenna, in hospital, had asked her to try to make everyone else laugh. Everyone's looking at me like I'm about to die and it's doing my nutting, Adams recalls her sister saying. After Jenna died, Adams, angry and grieving, wasn't sure what to do with herself. She did a couple of shows at Edinburgh, the first in which she sang opera and did a silent evolution of dance. I didn't really talk when I first did comedy. I couldn't. I didn't know what I was going to say. In London, she was performing on the drag scene, often as an Adele personator, and in cabaret. Her career in stand-up got a boost when she won the Funny Women Award in 2014. And in 2016, she got a Best Newcomer nomination at Edinburgh for the show she had written about Jenna's death and its impact. Grief is something she returns to often in her work. Adams was a creative child. Her father worked at British Aerospace and her mother's supermarket job paid for the children's extracurricular activities, the dancing and keyboard lessons, and her brother's karate. At school, Adams got into music and joined the choir and she went on to study drama at the University of Glamorgan. I did fuck all, she says, but that isn't exactly true because she put on two shows and developed a love of conceptual art and contemporary dance. I want to create work that doesn't patronise the people that are watching it, she says. When she runs her work past script editors or producers, she sometimes has a fight on my hands where I want to keep stuff in the scripts. I'm like, trust me, they'll get it. I think sometimes there's this idea that all us working-class people are thick as shit. Alongside her degree, she worked with a choreographer and got arts funding to produce experimental dance pieces. Adams isn't limiting herself to stand-up. She has ambitions for films, cabaret, Las Vegas one day, and a career like Bette Midler's is the dream. Dance, too. Although she loved it, she says it has not been something I've stuck at because there's not a lot of money in it especially when you look like me. Coming to a wider audience on Strictly she is braced for sizest comments when she takes to the dance floor. It's part of my life she says. A woman can't be on television without one of two things happening either someone saying she's ugly or fat or they send her really disgusting messages. She says she is desensitised to it, though she will report abusive tweets to the tweeter's workplace if she can find that out. I don't take any of this stuff lying down. I'm not a victim. Male Strictly contestants don't get comments about their weight, she points out, and she knows her appearance on the show will be political. Adams will think, instead, about her sister. She would love to make it to Strictly's Blackpool Week and the ballroom that loomed large in her and Jenna's childhoods. The other big disco dancing competition was held there. That would be amazing if I can last, she says. One of the shows falls on what would have been Jenna's 40th birthday. She wouldn't have ever really understood any of the stand up or the cabaret I've done, she didn't really watch that sort of stuff but she would understand this. It will be bittersweet. Jenna's absence will be huge, but, Adams adds, what if I hadn't been able to tell her story in 2016? Would I have any of this stuff? All I know is I'd give it all up to... Tears spring to her eyes. Her voice cracks, and she can barely get the words out. Spend a day with her. But that's not possible. So I'm just going to go and smash Strictly.
0: That was, I'm going to smash Strictly. Jade Adams on love, death, bat shaming and disco dancing by Amina Sana, read by Rachel Louise Miller. Finally, the smiley face symbol. It's an ever present symbol that has been co-opted by ravers, artists, and fashion for decades. So how does the company that owns it keep it relevant? Writer Will Caldwell met with The Smiley Company's CEO, Nicholas Lafrani, to explore just that. Read by Arazu. Nicholas
3: Lafrani, CEO of The Smiley Company, has sharp features and a sharper grin. I find him in his London office wearing a grey pinstripe dungarees, beaming energetically, clutching a poster that says... Take the time to smile. Around him, the room fizzes with iterations of the icon. You know the one. Fluorescent lights in the shape of that unmistakably simple, upbeat expression. Clothing, homeware, bottles of Prosecco, all stamped with it. A basketball net boasts a smiling backboard to hurl a ball at. A bowl of fruit? Also happy. I spot a small framed print of Vermeer's girl with a pearl earring, her face replaced with a yellow smirk. Nothing is off-limits. The smiley company puts smileys on things. Last year, it sold $486 million worth of products. Lufrani, 50, greets me with a fast talk and a French accent, steering me between desks to a small meeting room. We brush past employees in smiley-smattered harem pants bearing MacBooks slapped with smiley stickers. They smile politely. We smile back. Across the open-plan room, a fashionable young workforce busies itself at computers. Every season, Lufrani and his team come up with hundreds of new concepts for Smiley-based products and promotions and pitch them to brands. The Smiley company owns the rights to the image in over 100 countries. Yes, the Smiley, at least this particular version of it, is a trademarked image. Want to use it? You gotta pay. Today, the Smiley Company is ranked one of the world's top 100 licensing businesses, with 458 licensees in 158 countries. It boasts thousands of products across 14 categories, from health and beauty to homeware. This year it celebrates its 50th anniversary, which means, you guessed it, smiles all round. 65 new partnerships and collaborations with everyone from Reebok to Karl Lagerfeld. If you've noticed more smileys on the high street lately, now you know why. We do a lot, but we also don't do that much, Lafrani tells me. We're very, very protective of our brand. We try to be creative. We try to avoid having products with just a big yellow face. To Lafrani, who has in recent years expanded the company to create a good news platform to promote charities and social enterprises, the smiley is so much more than that. It's not simply a logo, it's a movement. It stands for defiant optimism, positive thinking, empathy, doing good. As the world simmers in these distinctly unsmiley times, an era marred by pandemic, the war in Ukraine and a looming global recession, Lufrani believes the Smiley Company has a lot to offer us. Smiles may be down according to the Smiley Company's very own Smile Index survey. But thanks to a decoration by the Smiley Company, 2022 is set to be the year of smiles. They're coming for you, whether you like it or not. Smiley's have drifted across the pop-cultural ether since the 1950s. A yellow and black one first showed its face in 1961, when it was printed on a promotional sweatshirt by the New York radio station WMCA, to promote the news talk show, Good Guys. Thousands were given away, but many people credit Harvey Ball, an ad man from Worcester, Massachusetts, for designing the smiley in its most iconic form. In 1963, Ball was hired by the State Mutual Life Assurance Company to create a smiley face icon to boost company morale. He penned his design in 10 minutes. Two dots and a flick, though not without artistic distinction. Bill Wallace, executive director of the Worcester Historical Museum, has compared the imperfect slant of its mouth to the smile of the Mona Lisa. Ball was paid $45. The company produced pins with a smiley face on it and sold millions over the course of the decade, though Ball did not trademark the design. Later, in 1971, Bernard and Murray Spain, two brothers who ran a couple of Hallmark card shops in Philadelphia, Spotted Ball's designed and copyrighted a version that combined the image with the slogan, have a happy day. In the first year alone, they sold more than 50 million buttons. The Smiley Company itself harks back to 1972, when Lefrani's father, Franklin, became the first person to register the Smiley as a trademark, taking ownership of it as a commercial logo, which he did in France. His background spanned journalism, advertising and licensing if you wanted to market a Batman product in France during the 1960s, Franklin was your guy. Baba the Elephant merch? Speak to Franklin. Licensing, when intellectual property rights are granted to third parties for a fee or royalties, was a relatively novel concept back then, and Franklin hit the jackpot the following decade. Fed up with downbeat reporting and miserable headlines, Nixon, Vietnam, Atomic War, Franklin pitched a new column to the newspaper Francois called Prenez le temps de sourire, or Take the Time to Smile, along with a simple hand-drawn yellow smiley face to signpost good news stories. Through his company, then called Knowledge Management International, he licensed the smiley out to other newspapers, then to other companies and products. He made a deal with Mars, which stamped smileys on Benito's chocolate pieces, then Levi's, which whacked it on jeans. It turned out you could put a smiley on almost anything and sell it business boomed. It can be difficult to imagine how such a simple icon could even be owned, but whether through genius or luck, Franklin had struck gold. The Smiley Company has fielded criticism for staking a claim to something so pervasive, but there doesn't seem to be too hard feelings on Ball's part. He died in 2001, but was not a money-driven guy, according to his son, Charles Ball, who told the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, He used to say, hey, I can only eat one steak at a time, drive one car at a time. To Lafrani it matters not who was first mover in the genesis of the Smiley. The trademarking itself was tantamount to a creative act. He invented it in the sense that he invented the business model of making Smiley a brand, he says. Apple, Adidas, Puma, Fred Perry. A lot of trademarks are very simple designs. It's not about who came up with the design." It's about who decided to build a business out of it, to make it popular and to create values around it. Yet just as the use of the smiley in art, fashion and design has ebbed and flowed with social and aesthetic trends, the smiley company's cycles of success have always depended on forces that exist outside it. Franklin rode these wave after wave. He was unfazed by the shifting semiotics of a once-corporate feel-good logo into something often quite subversive. It was shrewd of him not to grapple for total control over its meaning. If anything, as the smiley was woven into the tapestry of the 20th century pop culture, it boosted sales. At first, the smiley was designed to deliver a simple feel-good hit. It soon became entwined with anti-war and anti-establishment sentiments. One photograph from the 1970s shows peace protesters assembled in smiley formation. Another depicts an American soldier in Vietnam with a smiley sticker slapped on his helmet. In 1986, the artist Dave Gibbons depicted the smiley at its darkest, when he designed the artwork for Alan Moore's comic book Watchmen. The cover depicts the smiley with a single drop of blood trickling across its blank yellow face. When it came to the business of selling smileys, however, it was the birth of Acid House that sent the sales stratospheric. The smiley first permeated the club scene after the designer, Bransley Armitage, made a run of smiley t-shirts. The DJ Danny Rampling bought one and started wearing it in Ibiza. When Rampling launched the club night, Shoom in London in 1987, a flyer design featured smileys raining down it like ecstasy pills. Soon, the Smiley was reborn as a symbol of utopianism for a new generation of ravers. In 1989, when the UK was in the midst of the second summer of love, Franklin's business hit peak Smiley. Lefrani was a teenager at the time. He'd hear about the deals his father was making. The numbers were quite shocking, he tells me. I was seeing Smiley products everywhere. He made one deal with a company to produce something like 40 million badges. This explosion of Smiley culture was short-lived. By the time Lefrani took over in 1996, the business was, as he puts it, burnt out, crap, meaningless. Smiley was dead. Rave culture had been tarnished by negative press and scaremongering about drug use. The licensing deals disappeared as quickly as they came. The prejudice became the excuse, says Lefrani, But the truth is, the Smiley was oversaturated. It just wasn't something people wanted anymore. Lefrani was determined to rebuild the family business. His approach was different to his father's. Think global lifestyle brand, as opposed to purveyor of flea market tat. He began trademarking the Smiley around the world. A notable exception being the US, where the Smiley company settled out of court following a 10-year legal battle with Walmart which uses the logo in its promotions. Lufrani also developed digital iterations of the smiley that could be licensed out, such as graphic emoticons. He tinkered with the design and tried out new versions with a 3D effect. Franklin wasn't convinced. He was shouting at me, saying, why are you changing my smiley, says Lufrani. I always say, imagine you were the son of Hugh Hefner and he asked you to relaunch Playboy and you drew Bugs Bunny. It was like that. Just as a fleeting cultural nostalgia for the 1970s saw the smiley mainlined into the rave scene, it would take another wave of the sentiment to bring the smiley back into contemporary consciousness. By the late noughties, the 80s were back in vogue. Lufrani, who previously worked with the designer Oswald Boateng and always had an eye on the luxury fashion markets, negotiated collaborations with the likes of Moschino, Armani and Supreme. His vision was to reposition the Smiley Company as a heritage brand and the culture was buying into it. Most of all, that simple formula, product plus Smiley equals sale, held true. The moment Lafrani really knew the Smiley Company was back on top, he tells me, was when the image featured in the opening ceremony for London's 2012 Olympic Games. To the tune of Blue Monday by New Order, hundreds of dancers assembled into a giant Smiley while giant inflatable smiley orbs rolled around the arena. Suddenly, at the highest level from the British government who were organising the games, the smiley was accepted as part of your heyday as a nation. It was embraced. So what does the smiley mean today? For Fraser Muggeridge, a graphic designer who has used the smiley in his work with artist Jeremy Deller, independently of the smiley company, it remains a universal symbol for fun. No one goes, Oh, I don't like the smiley face, he says. It doesn't have any negative connotations. I think it's up there with religious iconography. Still, he was surprised to discover that the image still has the power to provoke. When he and Della were asked by Somerset House to produce a flag to fly above the building for its Utopia 2016 season, to mark 500 years since the publication of Thomas More's seminal text, they inevitably landed on the image. At first, Somerset House was uneasy. They were initially concerned due to the smiley faces association with acid house, rave music and recreational drugs, he says. But once the flag was up and people started taking pictures of it and seeing it as a positive symbol, it stayed up for two years. Muggeridge himself remembers the smiley long before the birth of rave. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, I used to go to Sunday school and we'd get smiley stickers to stick in our Bible that said, Jesus loves you, he tells me. That's a completely different vibe to Acid House. But the reason I thought it was good is that it always works. He finds it strange that anyone can own the trademark to it. Anyone can draw it themselves, make tweaks to it, he says. So in that sense, it's quite democratic. For Chelsea Berlin, an artist and author of the book Rave Art, the smiley has become one of those icons that has smashed its way through culture. As soon as you put the smiley face on something, people think it must be cool, hip or related to rave culture, she tells me. People still think that even now, but it's seen as a historic item rather than a powerful countercultural force. The commercialization of the smiley by the smiley company, she tells me, mirrors the trajectory that dance music has experienced since the late 1980s subsumed into the mainstream and sold back to us. So what happens when an image like the Smiley is dominated by a business like the Smiley Company? It becomes Disney, she says. The Smiley Company may be a multi-million pound operation, but at its heart is a fragility. Unlike Disney, one of its major competitors in the licensing sector, it doesn't deal in a multitude of characters or worlds from its creative catalogue. It doesn't really make anything at all. It's just that simple smiley. And its value depends on a cultural consensus that is always in flux. As Michael Chairman, founder of streetwear brand Market, which has partnered the Smiley Company to produce a range of products, tells me, the challenge for the Smiley Company will always be how to keep it as iconic as it is now. Lefrani knows they have to be creative. For him, The big fear is always that the company will end up back where it was in the mid-90s. We need to adapt the smiley to the zeitgeist to make it relevant, he says. Yet in an era of infinite replication, when images and logos can be shared and reimagined online in an instant, there's always the possibility that the smiley could take on a life of its own, leaving the smiley company in possession of an image in total opposition to its values. A mass-produced smiling face is already visual fodder for artists, many of whom have subverted its meaning, often to raise questions about conformity and consumerism. Banksy, for example, has placed smileys on the faces of armed police and the Grim Reaper. For the most part, creative use serves to reinforce the smiley as something iconic, expansive. But what's to stop it being co-opted by darker forces? Pepe the Frog. An innocent character from a webcomic was appropriated by far-right groups and is now considered a hate symbol. Yellow and black Fred Perry polo shirts are now a uniform for the Proud Boys, which led the brand to halt sales of it in the US. It may have been fleeting, but during the pandemic, the anti-mask movement, #SmilesMatter Smiles Matter, encouraged its followers to wear a smiley badge to signal their views. They depart Smiley HQ. I put this to Lafrani. Is he afraid that one day people will look at the smiley and see something negative, unpleasant, sad, staring back at them? He's philosophical. Like his father, he knows that the power of the smiley lies in it being used at all, even if the sentiment is ambiguous or subverted. It's the same between our smile and a human smile, he says. It can mean different things to people. If someone smiles at you, you don't know what's on their mind. You might read it as happy, but they could be imagining you falling off a cliff.
0: That was 50 years and 500 million dollars. The Happy Business of the Smiley Symbol by Will Caldwell. Read by Araze. Before we go, if you're enjoying this podcast, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's articles are read by Rachel Louise Miller and Arazu and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade greaves This episode was produced by Silas Gray. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers were Max Anderson and Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday.